1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, in the first half of the letter, is giving thanks to God for the work that he has done in these people that have been saved, and he's looking back uh, with gratitude. So the first three chapters really are about that. Somebody has described it as one long thank you note. And let's just take the first few verses. So verse 2 where we started last time and then down to the fourth verse. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sights of God and our Father. Let's stop there. Paul gives thanks for three things. A trinity, a holy trinity, the work of the Spirit in the lives of these young believers. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. Calvin said, this is a summary of the Christian life. Every believer is somebody who exercises faith, who labors, and who hopes. To put it in a different way, faith works. Love labors. Hope endures. Christianity is something living, spirit-produced. And this is something that God has done in the lives of these people. And if you're a believer here this evening, this is what he has done in our life. Let's look at these three things. If you want to pray for one another, then this is a wonderful prayer. May the Lord increase our faith, love, and hope. Interestingly, that trinity in a slightly different order is found in 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love. It is faith, hope, and love. Uh, sorry, um, let me get it right. Uh, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, these three. Work of faith. Faith is vital to our salvation. Uh, Paul wrote Thessalonians, it was in his first letters, and he wrote Galatians slightly before that. And he said in Galatians 2.16, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet here, he mentions work of faith. One of the greatest letters that Paul wrote was the epistle to the Romans. And in Romans 4, verse 5, he described being saved in this way. To him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. Yet Paul here describes faith 
as a work. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Does that make sense? How can Paul, in some of the greatest statements ever made regarding the gospel, where he's absolutely crystal clear that we are saved by faith without works, how can he here be talking about your work of faith? Or if you think of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, one of the greatest preachers of that time, uh, the watchword that he used and other reformers used was sola fide, faith alone. And Luther went on to say that faith alone, justification by faith alone, is the article by which the church stands or falls. And yet Paul here seems to be saying the opposites. Or what about James? Uh, James 2, 24 you see that by works is a man justified and not by faith. Well, dear me, you say, that sounds very confusing to me. How do you explain it? Well, it is quite simple. The faith that saves us, that justifies us, is in Christ alone. It's by faith alone in Christ, to put it another way, we are justified. But that faith doesn't work alone. It produces all sorts of fruits. Uh, to put it in a different way, this is how one man put it. We are most certainly not saved by works. We're saved by faith. But we are certainly saved works. Isn't that good? So the faith that saves doesn't just work alone. It's not a bare thing. But if you look here now, uh, incidentally, uh, Paul said in Galatians as well, Galatians 5, 6, that faith works through love. So faith isn't a barren thing. It produces these lovely works. Faith worketh by love. But if you look at what we've got here, it's singular, not plural. Your work of faith. So Paul isn't thinking of the different works that a living faith produces. He's thinking of faith as a work. Now, how can that be? Because faith, as I've often described from this pulpit, the essence of saving faith is it's an empty hand that takes what Christ has done. So what does Paul mean here by describing faith as a work? Well, what he means is this. Faith is something living. It's not something nominal. Uh, it's not just some head knowledge, I believe. It's something that's alive. It's something that's produced by the Holy Spirit. How do you know if somebody has life in them? Well, you know they've got life in them because they speak, because they get up, because they move around. If you've got a teenager, um, especially a, a teenage boy, you wonder sometimes, are they alive? 
Uh, and you know if there's life, if there's just uh, a grunt, or if they get up, and if they start working, well, there's plenty of life then. So what Paul is meaning here by work of faith is that faith isn't something dead. It's something living, something living. Inspire the living faith. Inspire the living faith. Now, is there a definition of faith in the Bible? Does anybody know? The closest you come to a definition of faith in the Bible is Hebrews 11, verse 1. And even then, it's not a definition of faith in the abstract. It's a definition of faith in practice. So God is telling us, do you want to see what faith is? Don't have a philosophical discussion about it. Look at faith in action. Faith is something that does something. And this is the definition. Now, these are difficult words. Faith is the substance. A better translation is reality. Faith is the reality of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. What do we mean by that? We mean this. The things that I'm talking about tonight, they are invisible things, aren't they? The things that we've been singing about, praising God about, they're invisible things. The things that we have come to believe in and hold dear, they're invisible things. Well, what are they? Well, the fact of God. No one has seen God. The fact of sin, even though sin produces visible results, sin as a disease is something spiritual. Uh, the fact of salvation in Jesus Christ on the cross, I know that was a historical event, but when that comes to us, uh, it ha has physical effects on some people, but in essence it's something invisible, it's something spiritual. Hell. Heaven, the Holy Spirit, God as our Father, these are all invisible things. But what faith does, or the eye of faith does, is make them real to us. Make them real to us. So Moses in Hebrews 11, all the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, they believed. But that faith didn't just cause them to sit back and do nothing. That was work. It moved them to action. It moved them. Just think of Moses. He did not fear the wrath of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in Egypt. And Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's family. And he could have become the son of Pharaoh. And he could have had all the riches and the power of Egypt at his disposal. But he just turned his back on all that. He just said, no, thank you. And that came at a cost. But he didn't fear the wrath of Pharaoh. Why not? Because by faith he saw another king, an invisible king. By faith he saw greater riches than what was available in Pharaoh's house. It was faith that made the invisible real. And in the light of that reality, he did things, wonderful things. And all the people in Hebrews 11 did those things by faith. Is your faith working? Does your faith in Christ move you to action? 
Uh, Maureen was in Moldova last week. It was the 15th anniversary of Casa Bucaria, the House of Joy in Trushen. 15 years! That's an example of work of faith. Ordinary women, if you don't mind me putting it like that, believe in God and being moved to do something impossible, to take people out of the institutions in Moldova, which was really unheard of at the time, and provide them with a safe and loving home. Faith in action. Faith in action. This is how one commentator put it. I like this. Faith is a rare energy, shows itself powerfully in us, Faith is alive. Even the weakest faith is a sign of life. It's like having a sixth sense. Think of that, Christian. You've got a sixth sense in faith. You weren't born with that. It was something God-given when we were born again. We've got a sixth sense. This world looks different to us, to what it looks to people who are not saved. Don't you see the unseen, what happens when God starts working powerfully is that the world to come, the things that are invisible, become more real than the physical. That's what happens in revival. So your work of faith, isn't that a lovely characteristic? And isn't that something to pray for one another? That our faith would show itself more in action. And then there's another phrase. This is lovely, isn't it? Labor of love. Labor of love. Now, why does Paul distinguish between work and labor? Aren't they the same thing? But in the Greek, two different words are used. So, the word for labor in the Greek signifies working so hard you're exhausted. Have you ever had that happen? You just collapse into bed at night because you're just absolutely exhausted. Now, that's the kind of work work that Paul is thinking of here. Now, in Thessalonica, there were Christians who were lazy. They believed that Jesus was about to come soon, and therefore they didn't bother working. So what Paul is emphasizing here is if there's love to Christ, it's going to show itself in hard work, labor, Now, we believe, don't we, in the fourth commandments that we sanctify one day in seven, the Lord's day, the first day of the week. It's a day of spiritual and physical rest. But that's only one half of the fourth commandments. God also commands six days shall you work. And that's not just paid work. We've been created to work. We haven't been created just to sit back and enjoy life. God has made us to serve. Now, what's a labor of love? It's easier to say what it's not. When I was um, in school, several decades ago now, I hated with a perfect hatred. And I'm not talking about being a pupil, but a teacher. I hated with perfect hatred 
having to teach GNVQ leisure and tourism. It was not a labour of love. What is a labour of love? It's best felt than felt, isn't it? You look at a person who feels privileged that he's being paid to do something that he loves. That begins to uh, explain what a labour of love is. Here is an illustration. Maybe this will help. A man from the West, this is many years ago, visited a Bulgarian peasant's house and they stayed there for some time. And during the period that they stayed there, the peasant's daughter was spending all her time stitching a dress. All the time. Every moment she was just stitching this dress. And the visitor asked her in the end, don't you ever get fed up of that eternal sewing? And she said, this is a labour of love. Oh no, you see, this is my wedding dress. This is my wedding dress. So even though she was doing something that was a drudge, well, for me, it would be a drudge to sew something because it was a wedding dress. It transformed that task. As George Herbert, the poet, put it, you may know this, all may of thee partake. We're doing something to the Lord. Nothing can be so mean, so small, which with this tincture for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. And this is it. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes the action fine. This is what it does. So here are these ordinary believers. Many of them would have been servants or slaves, as I should put it. And yet, because now they were serving the Lord and serving one another, they were doing tasks like sewing, probably worse than sewing, like uh, sweeping the floor, as George Herbert put it. They were just doing uh, monotonous, menial labor like that. But because they were doing it to the Lord... It was drudgery divine, drudgery divine, a labor of love. It's not so much what we do, it's why we're doing it. That's what transforms something into a labor of love. And the word love here, that's a, an interesting word. It's the word agape love. Before uh, Christianity, uh, there wasn't that word agape for love. People would use the word eros to describe love. Eros describes sexual, romantic love. A love that uh, loves things that uh, you like. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. Of course, eros has become defiled because of sin. So when the Beatles sing, all you need is love, what they're thinking of is eros love. Eros love loves what is worthy, loves so that it can possess it. It loves something that it likes. But when Christianity came, another level was reached when it came to love. There was now agape love, the love of God in Christ. And this is what these people had experienced. What's agape love? Agape love is not love to the worthy. It's not just love to the things that you like. This is love to the loveless shown. This is love to people who don't give anything back in return. This is love that doesn't ask any questions. This is love that doesn't put any conditions. This is love that reaches out to people 
who don't want you, who spit in your face. Oh, my friends, once you have agape love, then that begins to change your outlook, does it not? A labor of love. I don't know what your situation is, but I know this, God has called you to love. Whether it's in the office, whether it's at school, whether it's in the church, whether it's at home, whether it's just in the world in general, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever your hand sets to do, do it as unto the Lord. That's what makes drudgery divine. That's what makes something that you don't want to wake up to go into. That's what makes it into something that is of God. We're to love one another in this way. You know, there is more to this love than just loving people we like. There's nothing wrong with loving people we like. But church is more than that. In the workplace, Christian love is more than that. It's loving people that you wouldn't naturally like. This agape love rises above one's personal tastes. And there's a willingness to love, isn't there? Even people who may be difficult, even people who may be unkind to you, you love them because Christ has loved you. And you weren't unkind to Christ, were you? Of course you were. And yet he loved, he loved. And so we love others in return. We're making our wedding dress. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to somebody in my name, you're doing it to me. We're stitching our wedding dress. What did we sing? Give me a faithful heart, likeness to thee, that each departing day henceforth may see some work of love begun, some deed of kindness done, some wondrous sorts and when something, something for the is that our attitude? We want to do something, not to be seen by one another. We're not working in order uh, to uh, be praised. We're not asking for that. We just want to do something for Christ. Even if we're just working behind the scenes, and there are many tasks, they're just thankless tasks, and yet we're doing it for Him, and that transforms it. Do we see work, family, church in that light? Labor of love. Labor of love. Uh, There there was um, a lady who worked with Robert uh, Bennett in the Christian bookshop in town. Some of you may have known her aunt, Bessie. Did any of you know Aunt Bessie? Yeah, she was a character, wasn't she? Do you know what she would do? I think she did this most mornings. She would clean the step outside the bookshop until it was shining. Why was she putting so much effort into that? They must have had very important people visit that shop. Well, in a sense, you see, she wasn't doing it just for the people. She was doing it for the Lord. And she viewed every visitor as if it was Christ that was going to be coming. 
I heard of one person who was asked, what's your job? Who do you work for? And he said, I work for the royal family. And do you know what his job was? He was a postman. He worked for the Royal Mail. So in his mind, he was working for the royal family. My friend, you're working for the royal family. Whatever, whatever you're doing, it's as unto him. So your work of faith, faith is active. Your labor of love. And then one last thing quickly, your patience of hope. What's this? Patience, endurance, endurance. The Christian life is not a... It's not a sprint, it's not even a marathon. It's an ultra-distance race, isn't it? That's what's popular today, these ultra-distance events. Hope. That's what we're looking at. What keeps a runner going in a marathon, especially after 15, 16 miles when he hits the wall? What makes him keep on, keeping on? It's the fact that he hopes to reach the finishing line. (laughs) Now, this hope that we have as Christians, it's not living in hope, touch wood. It's not some optimism that some people have through temperaments. Some of you are born optimists. This is not the hope that Paul is describing here. Optimism is a matter of temperaments. Christian hope is a matter of theology. You can be a pessimist by temperament and still have this hope. I think one of the best descriptions of this hope is what Adoniram Judson said. The future is as bright as the promises of God. And he said those words in the midst of great trials. This is the hope, the blessed hope. Now, how does it work? How does it work? Well, these Christians were living in hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. They were living as if Jesus would return any day soon. And it enabled them, it enabled them to persevere. Even though they were being persecuted for it, they knew This is not going to last. He's coming. He's coming. And he's going to take me home. He's going to bring me to my eternal reward. Barclay said, a man can endure anything as long as he has hope. For then he is walking not into the night, but to the dawn. Are you in the night of sorrow at this moment? Does it seem to you as if it's never going to stop? Trials, the tribulations that are buffeting you? What the endurance of hope says is it's only passing. We are moving towards the lights. The lights. Of Christ's second coming. It's like a child in school. Enduring, enduring. What keeps the child going? What keeps the child going? The weekend. The weekend. Or think of a child... 
towards the end of the academic year. What keeps that child going? It's the thought of the summer holidays. Weren't they seemingly eternal when you were young? The summer holidays. What keeps us going through this school of Christ that this world is? My friend, the holidays, and they are going to be eternal. And there's not going to be a cloud on the horizon. There's not going to be results day. There's not going to be having to go back to school in September. It's one eternal day. And look at whose presence we're enduring in. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. We're doing it in our Father's presence. Doesn't that encourage you? Uh, when you were small, maybe, I know I've got a lot of illustrations from school days, but when you had to perform in a concert or you had to perform in some uh, sporting events, what, what would help you? What would help you? Well, I hope would help you seeing your parents there, uh, encouraging you, supporting you. And this is what it's like for us as believers, as the children of God. It's having our heavenly father there. He, he is there to encourage us. Well, what, a, what, 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 what strength? What strength? I don't know how he's able to do it. You know, with parents sometimes having to come to a concert or a sporting event, if they had busy lives, how can they do it? How can God the Father, how can he show an interest in me? He's ruling the universe. He, he's got plenty of things to do. He's got the whole world in his hands, and yet he's got you in his hands as well. Isn't that precious? He thinketh on me. Faith works. Love labors. Hope endures. Do we show those three things? That is what makes a Christian. And what makes a church? What's a healthy church? Paul isn't interested. He doesn't mention numbers. He doesn't mention how impressive the buildings are. He doesn't mention how big the church budget is. It's whether there's faith, love, and hope. May these things grow and abound in us for his namesake.